Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Injury Is Not Equal. My name is Shari Thompson Ritchie, and this is Youth Voices, a special series from the Injury Is Not Equal podcast. This series centers youth voices. Each episode will tackle a different topic shared from a youth perspective. These episodes are for youth, from youth, and completely developed and produced by youth. On this episode, you'll be hearing from four exceptional young individuals residing in the city of Toronto. They will be highlighting factors associated with youth living in low socioeconomic status households that may be unfavorably vulnerable to injury risk. They explore brain development, mental and physical health disadvantages, and they specifically comment on their experience with public educational cuts and youth supports that have been recently dissolved. Overall, pointing out its negative impact on youth living in low socioeconomic status communities. It makes us wonder, without these supports, is there a potential for increase of injury risk? Where's equity when we need it most? Let's listen. Hi everyone, welcome to an episode of the podcast, Injury is Not Equal. I am Ahmed. I'm Summer Rain. I'm Alicia. And I'm Rosalind. Trigger warning. I would like to mention that we will be speaking on mental illness, gun violence, suicide, and trauma. This episode is about low SES adolescents and how the factors associated with living in low SES households and communities make them more vulnerable to injury. Throughout this episode, we will be mainly highlighting and discussing mental and physical health disadvantages that low SES imposes on youth and adolescents through a variety of medians and in multiple ways. However, since that's a really broad topic, we'll divide it into subsections. The first is how low SES could affect brain development. The second is how low SES can lead to mental illnesses. And the third is how the TDSB cuts in schools are affecting at-risk youths negatively, as well as their health outcomes. Before we get started into discussing this topic, we need to define a few things. SES stands for socioeconomic status, which is the social and economic standing of an individual. And although looking at some of the data or studies, it may seem like one thing happened because of the other we need to mention that correlation does not equal causation. Lack of education and awareness about injuries in low SES communities adds to the occurrence and severity of non-fatal and fatal injuries. So adolescents are the most vulnerable to injury among all the other age groups. And today we will be focusing on how living in low SES communities could make that even worse. As you might already know, being from a low SES family may be associated with substantially worse health and psychological well-being, as well as impaired cognitive and emotional development throughout the lifespan of individuals. And that is due to a number of different reasons that we will be discussing throughout this episode. So to focus more on adolescents and low SES, which is the theme of this episode, we can say that parental care, cognitive stimulation, 
and many other factors affect the cognition, academic performance, mental health of adolescents, and most importantly, injury. We chose this topic because we felt that it is one that we are passionate about, and that, and that is a topic that, we us that is usually overlooked and underestimated by a lot of people. We look forward to exploring this topic with you guys. And we really hope you enjoy it. Our first focus point we will discuss is how living in a low SES environment affects brain development in adolescents and how that could make adolescents more prone to injury. First of all, we believe that stress is the median between adolescents with low SES and different brain physiology. There are many factors in low SES communities that play a role in creating and building up stressful events for adolescents, which is why adolescents who live in a low SES community have greater stress levels compared to adolescents who live in a high SES community. Another factor of why adolescents have greater stress levels is because of parental education and low income, which will increase the amount of stress that adolescents have. SES is a construct that's based on factors such as household income, material resources, education, and occupation as well as external factors like exposure to toxins, violence, and being an environment that's constantly stimulating. Actually, research is beginning to shed light on how experiences during early childhood and teenage years affect the structure and function of the brain, which is going along the theme of this section. That is true, Rosalind, but for now though, we can say with 100% confidence, the differences in the brain's physiological development between adolescents from high and low SES are caused by external factors such as stress and hopelessness. First of all, the neglect of mental health and overall well-being in low SES communities increases stress levels simply because parents can't afford sending their kids to a psychiatrist. I think one of the reasons for this is due to the stigma that people who go to see psychiatrists are weak or from unstable households. In low SES, parents are very stressed due to the pressure of providing constant financial support and safety to their families where these requirements are hard to be achieved, which somehow creates an extremely competitive environment. Yeah, and even sometimes a rights-depriving environment be because a lot of people can't afford to skip a day at work even if they are sick. So now let's talk about the facts and changes that happen due to stress. In several studies, teens from lower SES homes reported the occurrence of more stressful events in their lives than their counterparts in higher SES homes. Which actually negatively affects parts of the brain, such as the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, and the hippocampus. Yeah, and by the way, the hippocampus is a region of the brain that is responsible for short and long-term memory, learning, and awareness, which in turn affect decision-making. Yeah, just like the prefrontal cortex in the amygdala. Well, since you brought this up, um, just to make sure that we are all on the same page, the differences between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex is that the amygdala is kind of more responsible for like emotional processing than cognitive and um, than cognitive control and self-regulation. In fact, teens rely on all those parts in decision-making, 
but they rely mainly on the amygdala because the cortex is usually underdeveloped at that age. Did you know that the amygdala and the hippocampus may be best known as the parts of the brain that drive the so-called fight or flight response, mainly to stress? It is often associated with the body's fear and stress responses. Yes, I believe that um, the sympathetic nervous system is activated when a threat is perceived, which like triggers a severe stress response that prepares the body to either fight or run away. When this happens, a person's skin becomes pale and the eye pupils start to get dilated or bigger, which, as you might already know, is like sometimes shown in movies and drama shows when someone is terrified or in a very scary situation. Oh, speaking of that, fun fact. Did you know that the human brain treats all threats and dangers the same? Yeah, I think I also read that somewhere while researching. Like it said that in the brain, the threat coming from a deadline, for example, is treated the same way as a threat coming from being attacked by a lion. However, on a serious note, though, increased fear and stress could result in loss of control over stress, making it somewhat a chronic illness. Besides, One of the problems of stress is that it activates parts of the brain that are responsible for fear, which weakens the signal of the brain in the hippocampus that has a role in controlling stress. I would also like to add that different factors in low SES communities affect different parts of the brain. For example, substantial income insufficiency affects the structural differences in amygdala volumes as reports have proven that children and adolescents from low SES income households have smaller amygdala volumes. So those decreased amygdala volumes result in increased impulsivity and decreased cognitive function, which increases the risk and danger of injury in low SES communities. On the other hand, children and adolescents from low SES families have smaller hippocampus volumes, correlating more with the lack of parental education. Yeah, and by the way, just to remind our listeners once more that although there is a correlation between children of low SES and smaller hippocampus and amygdala volumes, this doesn't mean that low SES caused those volume changes. Instead, it is stress that caused that, along with other factors. However, stress and those other factors are just exponentially higher in uh, low SES environments. One of the most important things about the hippocampus is the hippocampal-dependent memory which affects our ability to form relationships, influences our behavior, and affects our judgment. Teens in poverty tend to engage in acts of violence due to the condition that they are subjected to, such as participating in more risky behaviors like gun violence. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind that this can be caused by their uh, affected cognitive functions, as we discussed earlier, and also their easier access to guns or firearms in low SES communities. Another factor that makes low SES adolescents more prone to injury is their increased emotions and emotionally driven decisions. Increased emotions, specifically anger, can cause adolescents to commit more violent acts, causing a decrease in amygdala and hippocampus volumes. Yeah, and these violent acts could be towards their peers at school and in their neighborhoods. And they happen much more often among adolescents in low SES than adolescents in middle to high SES. And by the way, I want to add that although the results about the shrinkage of the amygdala and the hippocampus volumes in adolescents may be unreal, they are actually results of advanced testing, such as pediatric imaging, neurocognition, and MRI scans. But such testing isn't available to people in low SES, so I think that numbers should be higher than actually suspected at the moment. 
Yeah, because if you think about it, people in low SES can't really afford those testings, or maybe they are even afraid of taking part in such studies due to like stigma or something. Similar studies have shown that the risk of interpersonal and self-inflicted violence is highest in adolescents from socially deprived families. Exposure to violence through age and SES affecting all levels of income, education, and occupation. Although exposure to violence affects all SES groups, youth from lower SES backgrounds tend to have increased exposure and likelihood of suffering from destructive future outcomes. And observing family, um, observing violence and family conflict is correlated with increased depressive symptoms starting from uh, high school. Adolescents' exposure to community violence is correlated with lower high school grade point averages and decreased enjoyment and overall interest in school. As well, I think students who attend uh, schools, I don't think I know that students who attend schools with high cases of bullying have lower grades than students who attend schools with little to no incidences of bullying. Furthermore, neighborhood violence has had negative effects on students' math and reading scores on standardized tests. This is because of how much focus students need for math and understanding of reading. Just bringing up a possible example would be the adolescents who fall victim to neighborhood violence, who get injured and can suffer from the pain the injury or injuries causes, causing, causing adolescents to be distracted from any tasks or work. Tasks like the EQAO. And the SSLT. So to finish up this section, I would like to share with you a piece of statistical data that I found earlier that compares the ratio of self-harm and violent offending injuries and parental income divided in quintiles, with one being the lowest and five being the highest. So the data shows an inversely re uh, proportional relationship between them. For example, when the parental income is at its highest, which is five, the ratios of self-harm and violent offending injuries are at their lowest, which is one. Therefore, supporting how low socioeconomic status can affect adolescents' development and increase risk of injury. So this leads us to our second focus point, which is how low SES can increase the risk for adolescent mental illnesses. And before we begin discussing this topic, we just want to mention that we do understand that not all adolescents or teens in low SES experience mental illnesses or mental health problems, and that the information we have in this section only applies to those who do. And now let's get started. So worldwide, about 13 to 20% of children and adolescents suffer from mental illness. As you might be able to tell by now after hearing the section beforehand, that there are significant associations between low SES and mental illness in studies of adults, adolescents, and children. You know what? While doing some research, I actually found that when symptoms of mental health problems occur early in life, the risk for mental illness or any type of mental health problems in adulthood is increased. And I think this is why teens' mental health is becoming such a big topic right now, because we are starting to realize the outcomes we get when we don't value the mental well-being of teens as those teenage years are the most important part in determining the mental health of people for the rest of their lives, that in fact, 50% of mental health issues are established by the age of 14. And besides the point that we do need to take care of children's youth, uh, children's and youth mental health so that we can minimize the chance of them developing mental illnesses when they grow up, 
The consequences of having mental illnesses as an adult can take much more dangerous forms than when you are a teen. And when I say dangerous, I mean like self-harm, harming others, committing crimes, maybe murder, and so many more things that we just wouldn't want to deal with. Yeah, and as we discussed in the first section, stressful events can cause a change in the brain physiology for adolescents. They can also lead teens to potentially develop mental illness. So, going back to low SES, we can see that adolescents and children of low, of low SES are two to three times more likely to develop mental illness than their counterparts of high SES. Actually, regarding that summer, a very important factor in increasing stress and chance of developing mental health problems in teens of low SES, and I have seen that in so many cases, is the constant pressure and demand that parents are placing on their children's shoulders. And that is because many parents and families of low SES heavily rely on their children to somehow make a better future for the whole family, which is too much to ask for. And after time, this kind of creates a tunnel vision for teens to only achieve the demands of their parents and neglect their own wants, making them think that if they don't do what their parents want and change the family's living circumstances to the better, they are turning their back on their family and letting them down. And I don't think we see this much in uh, high SES families. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of teens actually face that when their parents demand high academic performance and being in high paying jobs and high rewarding careers. And it doesn't matter in the parents' eyes, even if it contradicts with what the children want for their future careers. I think this often causes parents to think that they need to monitor their child's progress, usually by intruding into their social life and peering over their shoulder while they study, which can dramatically increase their anxiety and blood pressure levels. But most adolescents experience stress. So what else other than stress can directly cause mental illnesses in adolescents of low SES? Well, the different volumes of the brain parts can also cause mental illnesses. That's why we talked about them in the first section. Besides, teen can, teens can develop uh, mental illnesses from traumatic brain injuries, such as concussions, falls, and motor vehicle crashes. And actually, these injuries have long-term consequences, as researchers have found that children who experience traumatic brain injuries are at higher risk of developing headaches, depression, and mental or intellectual disorders up to five years after that event. Like, can you imagine how impactful that is? Yeah, trauma can actually alter the brain and change the way that things are processed within it. That's interesting, but different things can traumatize different people. So do you think that it varies? Oh, yeah, for sure, because everyone perceives things differently, right? So a concussion may traumatize someone, but then again, have like no effect on the other person whatsoever. Stress can also impact a person's brain and can change the way things are processed, like trauma. Yeah, and although different things can be traumatic to different people, there is a set definition on what trauma is. Trauma is an incident that causes physical, emotional, spiritual, or physiological harm. The person may feel distressed, threatened, anxious, and frightened as a result of it. Let's not also forget that a lot of teens who experience traumatic brain injuries, such as concussions, experience something called the fear of missing out, which is the feeling that other people are having more fun, living better lives, or experiencing more things than you are. And as a soccer player, to be honest, 
if I sustain a concussion and miss a tournament final or like a big game, my anxiety and stress levels would be skyrocketing. So then how do we deal with stress and how can we minimize its effects on our mental and physical health? Actually, a while back, I watched a YouTube video that talked about stress and how like different methods of treating it work. And the video had a really good story, which somehow answers your question, Rosalind. And I think the story really hooked me up that I had to search it and like read everything about it. So the story is basically about Dr. Kelly McGonigal, who was a psychiatrist and lecturer at Stanford University. She also wrote a book called, the book's about stress and it's called The Upside of Stress. And in that book, she talks about a new method or approach for treating stress. She starts off by saying that she spent her life as a psychiatrist warning and lecturing people about avoiding stress and how it could affect their health. Until one day she came upon a huge study published by researchers in the University of Wisconsin. This study was so big, it was conducted on 30,000 adults and it almost took 20 years to be published. So the way it was conducted is that researchers only asked the participants two questions. The first one is about whether the participants experienced high, medium, or low levels of stress the year before. And the second question was whether they think that experiencing stress affects their health. After a few years, when the researchers decided to complete the study and get results, they found that high levels of stress increased the chance of individuals' death by 43%. However, this was only evident in people who believed that stress negatively affects their health. And on the other hand, people who experienced high levels of stress but did not believe that stress affected their health were the ones with the lowest percentage of harm and lowest probability of death among all the other participants, even the ones who experienced low levels of stress but believed it negatively affected their well-being. So I think that the new approach that Dr. McGonagall addresses in her book, and she wants people to understand, is that being good at stress is not about reducing or avoiding it, but rather accepting that life is stressful, and you can't always control how stressful it will become, you know? Yeah, and I think this story helped me understand that as teenagers, we can't always block out stressful events and situations. We need to find ways, healthy ways, to kind of like cope and work past the situation. Yeah, because as students, we are constantly under the pressure of so many things at school or at home that if we stress about every single thing, I don't think our brains would even be able to function. So I believe that adopting this method is very crucial. Moving on, our third focus point is how the TDSP budget cuts have affected those from from low SES households. In 2019, the government of Ontario cut $25 million from at-risk youth programs and support groups for low SES students, as well as the TDSP's $46.8 million budget cut instead of increasing the funding for additional programs to help adolescents in low SES areas with their mental health. Programs such as the elementary IB program were cut, as well as funding from a lot of other programs such as psychology, speech and language pathology, and social work. These budget cuts resulted in staff decreases in these programs. And you know what? A lot of people do not realize that despite the fact that the budget and personnel cuts for each department might seem insignificant, But if we zoom in a bit, we would find that these cuts actually had substantial effects on the health outcomes of many at-risk youth and low SES communities. And because many low SES parents cannot afford to send their children to therapists or 
or treatment for their mental health, as we said earlier. School counselors and psychiatrists are most likely the only source of mental health counseling for many adolescents suffering from depression and anxiety. Like, I honestly don't understand how the government is thinking about this. First of all, the last thing you want to cut fundings from is the education system, because we all know how important it is. But even if you decide to cut from the education system's budget, you should not cut from schools in low-income and SES areas, because a lot of students and teenagers there are in desperate need of those resources and programs that were cut. During our research, we had contacted a local TDSB student who had been affected by the TDSB budget cuts. This student wishes to remain anonymous. This student had been connecting with their student support worker in order to improve their mental and physical health. Unfortunately, due to the budget cuts, the student support worker had been eliminated. This left the student feeling lost. The low SES student had found someone to communicate and confide with in a safe space, which had prevented further injury. I read an article about the TDSB cuts, and there's a quote that like, I think really helps tie in the low SES and the cuts in the same point. Summer, could you read it for us real quick? Yeah, for sure. In addition to increasing class size at all grade levels and reducing the number of early learning educators in kindergarten, School boards had been forced to cut back essential mental health services, special education services, and programs that help young people in poverty. This quote is from Kathy Dandy in the Beach Metro Community News. So, Summer, what do you think about it? And, like, what can you, what are your takeaways from this quote? Well, personally, I saw the changes taking place during my 11th year. And it really showed how essential these services and programs are. Like, a lot of students rely on these outlets and accommodations in order to succeed. From what we discussed today, these are our concluding thoughts. Low SES can impact teens in a plethora of ways, some of which include brain development, risk of injury, and lack of funding for programs that support them. Although some programs are already in place to help students that come from low SES families, the funding, staff, and resources of these programs are still decreasing, leaving students without the support system they need for academic and overall success. Although making cuts to any program is not an easy decision, some factors should be considered that aren't at the moment. The ones making cuts should think about how they're impacting students during school time as well as after school. Personally, I think that the people in charge should prioritize the needs of their students, realize how many of those students have mental health illnesses and or have disadvantages compared to some other students, to take action to make sure the resources are open to the students to help them be the best students and individuals they can be in and out of school. Besides, there's a huge lack of research in the area of brain development, adolescence and low SES and injury, mainly due to the complexity of our neurological system and cognitive functions. And research in this area is very costly and requires a lot of time. There are a lot of factors that are nearly impossible to account for when conducting such research. For example, maybe one of the participants in the study group could experience some kind of abuse or mental illness and not report it because they are afraid of the stigma and so on. These findings cause a scarcity and uncertainty of research and results in such areas, which makes it harder for us to understand the extremely tangled and intertwined relationship 
between physiological brain development, mental illnesses, stress, and injuries among adolescents of low SES. And regarding the topic of mental health, I believe everybody can work on improving their mental health. And even if you don't have like a mental illness, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take care of your overall mental well-being. Although we mentioned that many teens have mental illnesses, not all teens do, and there's nothing wrong with having or not having a mental illness. We also understand that each person might express mental illnesses differently. We think that every person should have, should have enough knowledge about the symptoms of mental illnesses and some of the common ones, including feeling restless, becoming easily fatigued, feeling easily irritated, and lastly, worrying too much or having trouble concentrating. So please, if you see that your friend, brother, sister, or anyone you know experiencing this, do not hesitate to talk to them and make them feel better. You should not hesitate to see a doctor, trusted adult, or a mental health professional if you're experiencing any of these symptoms. And most importantly, have an action plan ready to be used right away. You could also use any of these resources. Kids Help Phone. Visit kidshelpphone.ca or call 1-800-668-6868. The Mental Health Helpline. You can visit mentalhealthhelpline.ca or call one 531 2600. Thank you for your attention. This concludes our episode for Injury is Not Equal. We are Alicia, Summer Rain, Rosalind, and Ahmed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Special thanks goes out to Ahmed, Summer Rain, Rosalind, and Alicia for the research and their hard work on developing this episode. And to Natalie, the TDSB Experiential Learning Educator. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and followers. You can always follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Let's Talk Injury. There's more to come. I hope you'll join us.